So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. As we come uh, to Genesis chapter 26, we're continuing with our verse-by-verse Bible study through the book of Genesis. It's, in, it's interesting to note that this is the only chapter in the Bible that's dedicated solely to Isaac's uh, life. It's dedicated to Isaac alone. Isaac lived longer than Abraham. He lived longer than Jacob. He, uh, he lived longer than Joseph. But there's actually less recorded about his life than uh, those other men. Twelve chapters are uh, devoted to Abraham's life. And it's about the same amount, 12 chapters roughly, that is devoted to Jacob and Joseph's life. Uh, But this is the only chapter right here. Genesis 26 is the only chapter that's devoted to Isaac's life. And it's actually, you know, it's a really powerful chapter. Uh, As I was studying and preparing, you know, just just being refreshed. Things that I've known in the past, things that I've taught through before, just having it refresh me again, it's just been really great. And as as we've noted in past studies, um, it's interesting again to see, and we're going to see it in this chapter, how the sins of the Father are reproduced in the Son. It's so very sobering. And if you can't, contrast Isaac's character with Abraham, his father, and Jacob, his son, what you see in, in Isaac's life is you don't see the triumphs that Abraham enjoyed in Isaac's life. And you don't see the failures that Jacob endured in Isaac's life. Uh, there's, there's less triumphs and less failures in Isaac's life. But it kind of seems like things are kind of going downhill. I don't know. But anyway, Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And so you don't think that this is the same story, uh, the same famine that we read about in Genesis 20 when we studied through that. We're told that there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. So we're, we're um, you know, the Holy Spirit wants to let us know this is a different event. This is a, a different thing. Actually, the events here in Genesis 26 They're about 90 to 100 years after uh, the story in Genesis 20. Well, wait a minute. You know, are you saying that Abimelech, he's been around this this Abimelech character? He's been around for 100 years? No, this is not the same uh, Abimelech. You might recall when we were in Genesis chapter 20, uh, we noted that Abimelech, you know, that was a title. It was a title much like uh, Pharaoh. It's a title much like Caesar. Abimelech was the title of the king of the Philistines, we're told. And you might also recall, too, Moses uses the word Philistines, but they're not actually like the Philistines that are going to be around later in David's life. You know, these people are the precursors to uh, the Philistines. But Moses uses it just to identify the area that we're talking about. So verse 2, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I tell you. 
What we're seeing here is Isaac, he's, he's following in the footsteps of his dad. There's a famine in the land. And just like his dad, Isaac decides to go down to Egypt. And when faced with difficulty, Isaac, he kind of abandons that place that God has chosen for him, that place of obedience, which would have resulted in God's protection in his life. But he abandons that place and he runs down to Egypt. And that's a reminder uh, to us, right? Well, before we get to that, we need to remember that Egypt, it's a type of the world. It's always a picture in the, of the world. It's where Abraham got in trouble, right? We need to be reminded of that. It's where Abraham got in trouble. It's where his fellowship with the Lord was broken back in Genesis 12. And you'll remember that Egypt, as I said, it's a picture of uh, the, the world in the Bible. But it was in Egypt, while, while Abraham decided to run to Egypt during difficult times, his fellowship with God was broken. It's where he picked up um, Hagar, uh, you know, which that also caused all kinds of problems. And, and God didn't reveal himself to Abraham during that time that he was in Egypt. He didn't, Abraham uh, didn't have a revelation of God while he was in Egypt. That didn't start again until he got back to the promised land. And, uh, you know, in Egypt, that's where Lot stumbled. Remember, Abraham takes his family and Lot down there. They picked up Hagar while they were down there. While they're in Egypt, Lot stumbles, he struggles. And one could argue that Abraham's actions contributed to, you know, Lot's problems in life too. And now we see Isaac, he's doing the same thing that his father did. Instead of trusting the Lord in, in the midst of this famine, instead of looking to the Lord for help, what he does is he runs down to Egypt. He heads off to Egypt. He gets down to the area of Gerar, and the Lord speaks to him. Verse 3, he says, Dwell in the land, and I will be with you and bless you. So what we see here is God, he just so graciously intervenes. He doesn't want Isaac to go into the world. He just graciously intervenes. He says, Isaac, don't go down there. Don't go down to Egypt. Abraham went to Egypt and just made a, a mess of things. And God now is graciously intervening here in Isaac's life. And maybe that's a word for someone tonight. You might be facing hard times. You might be facing troubles. And you're tempted to run to the world for help. Maybe you're experiencing anxiety or fear. And you feel tempted to rush off to the world to get some help you know, return to old ways. Oftentimes when people are experiencing difficulties as Christians, they, they think back, man, you know, before I was a Christian, I never had these problems. Before I was a Christian, you know, I wasn't like this. And it's true. It was much worse. But, you know, people are tempted to run back to the world. And maybe the, the, tonight the Lord would speak to your heart and graciously intervene in your life by saying, don't go down there. Don't go there. Look to me and I'll care for you. I will satisfy you. Um, Psalm 81 is one of my most favorite uh, psalms. But 81.10, you know, the Lord speaks and he says, 
open wide your mouth and I will fill it. You know, he says, if my people would have looked to me, he says, I would have fed them also with the finest of wheat. You know, but my people wouldn't look to me, it says. And, and he says, you know, I would have, with honey, I would have satisfied them. Honey from the rock. I mean, God wants to bring the sweetest things out of the hard times. You know, God is saying to us in, in that verse that he has resources. He has abilities to meet us in our difficult situations in life in ways we've never imagined. He can make the sweetest things come out of the most difficult situations. You know, he's just pleading with us, would you look to me? Would you look to me and trust in me? And I wonder if tonight that isn't the Lord trying to intervene in, in a situation in your life. You know, those of you that maybe are facing hard times, that the Lord would just speak to your heart and plead with you. Look to me. I'm going to take care of you. Just like he's doing here in Abraham, uh, sorry, Isaac's life. Verse 3, dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you for to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And you have to see it. You have to notice it. It's in your seed singular. It's a reference to the Messiah. You know, the covenant that God made to Abraham, he's now giving to his descendant. He's giving it to Isaac. And that's exactly what God promised. He says, you know, I'm going to bless those that are coming after you, Abraham. I'm going to bless your descendants. And now God is giving this promise. He's giving this blessing to Isaac. God is true to his word. In that, he's giving this blessing to Isaac. And it's the same promise that God gave to Abraham. It includes the land. It says, to you and your descendants, I'll give all these lands. Same thing he promised Abraham. He, he promised Abraham that he would, became, that he would become a, a, good, a great nation. And that's what he promised uh, Isaac here too. I will make your descendants multiply, multiply as the stars of heaven. The, the blessings of the world uh, the blessing to the world would come through your lineage, Isaac, just the same way he promised Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 5, here's the reason for the blessing. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And there are two things that we need to uh, notice here. First, Isaac is blessed because of another. He was blessed because of Abraham's obedience to God. And it's a similar way that, that blessing comes into our life. We're blessed because of the obedience of Christ. He lived that sinless life. He went to the cross in obedience to God the Father to win our salvation, to give his life a ransom for many. That was the purpose he came, and that's what he fulfilled. Um, we're blessed because of the obedience of Christ. And then the second thing you want to notice is, and this is real important you want to notice, as you look at Abraham's life, well, his obedience wasn't really that consistent and it wasn't really that complete. And yet God counted it as such. God 
to say this about Abraham because Abraham was declared righteous by faith, Genesis 15, 6. And as far as God was concerned, all he saw in Abraham's life was the righteousness of Christ. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atonement, well, you know, God sees us as righteous. And that's the reality. In God's eyes, you're righteous, whether you feel that way or not. Because our righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Now, God told Isaac to dwell in the land, verse 3. That's a reference to the promised land. Isaac, he dwells in Gerar. Gerar is right at the border of Egypt, where what we would call today uh, Gaza. It's part of the promised land. Yet it's as close as you can get to Egypt and still be in the promised land. So Isaac stops there and he camps in Gerar. Living this close to the world brings about problems. Remember, Gerar is one of the places where Abraham was willing to um, place his wife in a compromising situation. One of the great lessons here for us is this, as we see Isaac repeating things that his dad did. And one of the great lessons for us is that our kids are watching. If you as a dad, if you as a mom are living close, as close to the world as you can, if you're living right at the border of the promised land and the world, then your kids are going to live on the border too. That's just the, the reality of it. They're going to take note of what you do, and they're going to say, hey, it's where my parents lived. You know, uh, they were living close to the border, and they were okay, you know, so it's going to be okay with me, right? I mean, it wasn't so important for them not to live there, so it can't be that important for me not to live there. You know, I tell you what, as parents, we can't go there. We can't, we can't be living close to the world if for no other reason than our kids are watching. And the truth of the matter is this. You may live close to the border and you may survive it. You may not be drawn into the world all that much. You know, you may have the margins to survive that experience. But I promise you, your kids, they don't have those margins. You know what? They're not going to survive living that close to the world. The world will suck them in and it will destroy them. Verse 7, And the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, um, hmm, She's my sister. For he was afraid to say she's my wife because he thought, Lest the men of this place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. You know, it just seems to me, we, we've heard this story before. Right? I mean, this sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Well, it's the same sin that Abraham uh, was continually dabbling with. And now it's being reproduced in his son's life. And one of the terrible consequences of sin is that it always affects others. It affects people that we love. And that fact cannot be denied. We see Isaac go from this place of high spiritual uh, ground he's where he's just just 
great spiritual experience where he's there communing with God, he's praying, he's meditating, and we see him go from that place to this place, a place of sin, not trusting the Lord uh, to protect him, but lying to protect himself. And it's because he doesn't trust God to care for him. And when we don't trust God to care for us, same thing will happen in our life that's happening in Isaac's life right here. And that's that the, the weakness of our flesh will take control and now it will become the driving force in our life. Verse 8. Now it comes to pass when, we had been, when he had been there a long time. How long was he there? We don't know. It came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through the window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. I tell you what, I mean, you got to look at this verse in the New, uh, not the New King James, but in the King James Version. It's so funny. What does it say? It says that Isaac was sporting with Rebekah. What are they doing? I mean, they're playing baseball. He looks outside. They're bowling. What do you mean they're sporting? You know, um, if you read the ESV, it says this. It says Isaac was laughing with Rebecca. And I'm not sure if seeing the two of them laughing is actually enough to make, um, you know, Abimelech think that Rebecca is not Isaac's sister. And I don't want to get off on a, on a you know, a, divergent. You know, I don't want to get off track here uh, and talk about translations of the Bible. But if you're reading something other than the New King James or the King James Bible, I encourage you, make sure you include them into your Bible study too. Because, um, you know, it's probably the the best translation uh, into the English of any of the Bibles that we have, the King James or the New King James. Um, So, Anyway, verse 9, Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she's your wife. So how could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. Abimelech says, How could you do this? Again, this is very reminiscent of what we saw before. In Genesis, I think it was 20, right? Where this pagan king is rebuking now one of God's people. We see godly Isaac is being rebuked by this pagan king. He says, why on earth would you say such a thing? And Isaac said, I was afraid. You know, the fear of man is a snare. The Bible tells us, verse 10, and Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of uh, the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. And you need to understand, if Egypt is a picture of someone living in the world, then Gerar is a picture of someone living on the fence, right? They're as close to the world as they can get get without being in the world completely. And they have one foot in the church, a believer will have one foot in the church, and one foot of the world, they're living on the fence. And we saw it in Abraham's life, and now we're seeing it in Isaac's life. If and, and if you have one foot in the world, you know what? You're going to fall into sin. We, we saw it in Abraham where he jeopardized his wife. And um, now we're seeing that sin reproduced in the sun. And we have to understand if you're living that close to the world, if you're straddling the fence, the reality is, is you're going to fall into sin. As someone who's spent a lot of time 
in, in uh, my ministry is spent a lot of time with young adults, high school age kids, and probably the most frequently asked question from them is, um, is this or is that? I mean, is that crossing the line? How far can I go with my girlfriend and, you know, not cross the line? How, can, how, how much can I drink at a party with non-Christians and still be a Christian? How much can I flirt with that girl at work and, and it still just be fun? I mean, where's, where's the gray area where, it, it, you know, where's the line? Is it okay for me to go to bars with my friend? You know, is that okay as long as I'm not getting drunk? I mean, what's the deal? You know, they ask that all the time. And what they're really asking is, how close can I be to the world and still go to heaven? And, you know, adults, they're interested in those questions too. But the thing with adults is they don't ask all the time. They just try to figure it out for themselves. And, you know, what I tell, what it tells me about a person when they ask me those things, what I see in that person as they ask me is that they've forgotten about Jesus. You know, you haven't really seen him. You haven't really experienced him if you're wondering how close you can be to the world and still be a Christian. The secret of separation is not being separated from. The secret of separation is being separated to, right? It's not that... Uh, separation. It's not separation from the world and sin, but it's separation to the Lord and righteousness. And the question shouldn't be, you know, how close can I get to the world and still go to heaven? The question should be, how far and how fast can I run for Jesus? You know, we need to flee from, from sin and run to God with all that's in our heart. That needs to be you know, what we do as believers. We need to get as far away from the world as, as possible. If you dwell in Gerar that close to the world, you're going to fall. And that's the message of Gerar. Proverbs 6, 27 says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? You know, the answer is no. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. And if you think anything other than that, you're just fooling yourself. You're just fooling yourself if you, if you think anything otherwise. Verse 11, so Abimelech changed all, uh, sorry, so Abimelech charged all his people saying, uh, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death, Right? As a pagan king of the Philistines, Abimelech understood that adultery was to be punishable by death. And isn't it interesting, as a pagan king, as a pagan society, they knew that adultery was wrong. Shows me, I was thinking about it, and it just shows me how far we have fallen as a nation. And what I'm talking about, I'm talking primarily about the church. You know, uh, Pew Research found that 50% of Christians who took this particular poll said that, that casual sex between consulting adults who were not in a committed relationship, 50% of Christians said it's always or sometimes permissible. 80% of Christians, single Christians from the age of 20 to 30, 80% of them, 
you know, admitted that they're, they're having sex. And it shouldn't be. We're to be a chosen generation. We're to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're to be God's own special people that we may proclaim his praises, right? The praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. How far we have fallen as God's people. The things that we tolerate in our lives. I mean, it's just, it's just terrible. You know, years ago, uh, when we went to Corvallis, Oregon to help plant a, a church there, Calvary Chapel, Corvallis, you know, it fell to me. I don't know how it fell to me, but it fell to me that, uh, you know, we, we didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. But we found out churches were supposed to have insurance. So it kind of fell to me that I, I needed to go and, uh, you know, acquire assurance. So you know what I did is I called Applegate and I talked to uh, the administrator at the time, Joe Strobel, and I just said, hey, you know, Joe, I mean, do churches get insurance? He's like, what? You guys don't have insurance. What are you doing there, Garrett? I'm like, I don't know. But you know what? Churches, they have to have insurance to protect themselves uh, from the pastor committing immorality against this flock. Isn't that wild? That's, it has to be there because that's how widespread immorality of pastors are within the church as a whole. You know, how far we've fallen uh, as a, the people of God. You know, we have insurance in case one of the elders or the assistant pastors, secretary, somebody embezzles money from the church. I mean, you got to have insurance for that. It's, it's crazy. You know, um, I know churches that have had their secretary embezzle thousands and thousands of, of dollars from them. You know, who would ever think that, that a church of all things would need insurance against those types of things? But it's true. And that's just, you know, how far we've drifted as a, as a church in this nation. And you know what? How far we've drifted just as a nation. You know, if you're watching the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett, you're hearing Democratic senators arguing and, and, and um, you know, uh, they're arguing on the behalf to maintain abortion for women. 3,000 babies a day are aborted in this nation. Man, how far we've fallen. Adultery constantly in your face. In, in America, you can't go to a movie, you can't turn on the TV without, you know, seeing something that, you know, you just shouldn't ought to see. You know, the same Pew Research poll revealed that 84% of, of Americans who said they had no religious affiliation, 84% of them said that sex outside of marriage was okay. And you know what? That wasn't the way it was 50 years ago. It wasn't the way it was when most of us were kids. I mean, boy, you just didn't talk about those things. And you know what? We ask God to bless us as a nation. It just, we need to repent is what we need to do. We need to repent as a church because that's where judgment is going to start. Judgment is going to start in the house of God. We need to repent as a nation, I believe God wants to bless America. 
But our, our nation, as well as the church, has fallen so deeply into wickedness. It's a shame. And I believe God wants to move in his church. But the sin and the garbage and the junk that's in the church keeps him from moving the ways that he wants to. You, you may think, you know, well, boy, our nation is lost. And I don't actually think so. You know, it doesn't matter what happens in this election coming up. Our nation's not lost. And I would point to the book of Jonah that shows us that an, an entire nation can repent, that a revival can occur in, a, in a, a nation, all the way from the president down to the very least of the citizens. They can repent. And I'm praying God would forgive us as a church. You know, let's start local. I'm praying God would forgive us for our sins as a church, the things that we've tolerated, the things we've compromised on, the things we've allowed to creep into our lives. I'm praying that God would, would forgive us as a church as a whole, that God would forgive us as a nation. And I'm asking God to send revival. I'm asking God that revival would start right here in the town of Truckee. You know what? It's got to start someplace. Why not start here in the town of Truckee? Why not give ourselves to repentance? You know, the question is, will we, God's people, will we humble ourselves? Will we pray? Will we seek God's face? Will we turn from our wicked ways? If we would do that, God has promised that he would heal our land. He'll heal our nation. The question is just this. How bad do you want it? How bad do you want to see that healing? You know, Will you pray? Will you get on your knees? Will you humble yourself and ask God to do a great work in our midst? Verse 11, so Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And again, isn't it crazy? God had just appeared to Isaac. He says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you all the blessings that I gave your father Abraham. But what Isaac is doing is he's walking by faith. He's not, uh, sorry, he's walking by sight. He's not walking by faith. I mean, God promised all those things, but he didn't trust the Lord. Now, uh, Abimelech says it, you know, probably under the motivation, the inspiration of the spirit to, to just be a protection to Isaac. Verse 12 says, Then Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the men in the area, they began, uh, the man Isaac began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. And you might say, whoa, wait a minute, right? You said Gerar is a type of living close to the world. And, uh, you know, if it's living as close to the world as you can get it, that's what you said, right, Gare? Yeah, that's what I said. That's correct. That's what it's a picture of. And you said that God's blessed Isaac now like a hundredfold, and God kept blessing him. Yeah, that's true. That's what it says. Um, well, how's it possible? How's it possible that someone who claims to be a believer lying to the people around him, the people that are near to him, living as close as he can to the world. He's living on the fence. How is it that God blessed him? Well, it's because of verse 3. God said he would bless Isaac. 
God blesses Isaac in spite of himself, not because of himself. And what we see here is just how gracious God is to us. It's exactly how gracious God is to each one of us, how gracious he is to you and me. God is faithful even when we're faithless. And it's in times where you're least deserving of his blessings. Those are so often the times that he reveals how great his grace is towards us. It can be in those times that he, that he blesses us in ways that you just know you don't deserve it in the least, that you understand it's all about God's grace. It's all God's grace. It can catch us off guard. It can catch us by surprise. And in those times, you know that we're deserving of wrath. But God blesses, not because we deserve it, but because that's how gracious he is. Boy, you know, it's... it's during those times, God would have us know that that's who he is. That's who God is. God is gracious. And when you're struggling and backsliding and God pours out uh, his grace on you, you know, it actually can be harder to accept than just taking the punishment, you know. But that's who God is. God is so very good, so very gracious. And God blessed Isaac beyond belief, it says, verse 14. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines even envied him. Whenever God is blessing, there's always going to be somebody that's going to be envious. If God is blessing your ministry, if he's blessing your family, wherever it may be, that blessing coming into your life, there's always going to be people that are envious of what God's doing in your life. Now, the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and they'd filled them with earth. What a picture this is of the enemy. I mean... The things that once brought refreshing, refreshment, um, coolness into your life, you know, giving uh, life-giving waters in your life, that thing that just brought just, you know, again, strength and refreshment and renewal in your life. The enemy tries to fill it with dirt so that the sources of that uh, refreshing so that they're not a source of that refreshing in your life anymore. Verse 16, And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. How greatly did God bless Isaac? Well, at this point, he's mightier than the entire Philistine kingdom. Verse 17, Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. The Philistines caused such problems for Isaac. So what does he do? He moves out of Gerar and he moves into the valley of Gerar. Verse 18. And Isaac dug wells again. Uh, Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. And it's so interesting to, to note this. Is is we often see Isaac by a well. Abraham was a man of altars. Jacob is a man of tents. But Isaac, we see him as a man of wells. 
Seven times, specifically, we read that he's by a well. And that doesn't happen just by accident in the Bible. That, that That's uh, recorded seven times. It's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in that culture, we, we maybe need to be reminded, in that culture, a well or a spring of water, it was extremely important to have somebody, um, you know, clog up your well with dirt or something like that. I mean, wells and water in that culture, that was the difference between life and death. And verse 18, it's just such a great verse. He dug the wells that his father's initially, that his father initially dug. Isaac digs them again and he calls them by their old names. How we need to redig the wells of prayer. Redig the wells of Bible study and fellowship that our fathers have dug. Those men that have gone before us that have given us a Christian heritage in the country. Men like Jonathan Edwards, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, Chuck Smith, J. Vernon McGee, Walter Martin. I mean, boy, how we need to redig those wells. You know, there, there's a well called the blood. And so much of the church today, uh, you know, they don't even want to talk about it. They don't even like to speak of it in church. And it seems like that well has just been filled up with dirt. But the blood of Jesus is a fountain, pure and powerful. And it's our, it's our hope to be washed in the blood of Christ. And it's a well from which great refreshing flows. You know, there's a well called sin. There's a fountain called uh, repentance. There's a, a well uh, that's called forgiveness. And those are fountains that flow with refreshment and with renewal, uh, but they seem to be clogged by dirt. Again, by the enemy, seems to have clogged these things up. And instead of redigging those wells, much of the church has just tried to dig new wells. And the result of that is just, that's where compromises come into the church instead of refreshing. You know what? We don't have to discover new ways or we don't have to discover how to do ministry cool, how to do it cooler so that we can, you know, attract people to the church. You know, we have this well called the word of God and prayer. And if we'll just unclog it, you know, that well has the answer to the questions of life that people are struggling with. And there's no well more refreshing than that one. You know, it's the source of life. We don't have to find some phony way of being culturally relevant as a church. The message of the cross is cross-generational. You know, it's, it's always been uh, culturally relevant. The answers to the questions that older people and younger people are looking for, man, they're found there at the foot of the cross. People, when they're hurting and struggling, you know, they don't want fluff. They don't want, you know, platitudes. You know, they're looking for answers. They're looking for substance. They want hope in life. They want redemption. And as a church, we want to be about digging the wells of our fathers again, right? In the Word on Sunday, women's Bible study on Tuesday, 
Men's Bible study every other Thursday. Our midweek study on Thursdays. I'm preaching to the choir right now. You guys are, you know, I commend you for being plugged in on Thursday nights. But also underground prayer on Saturday nights. And if I might say, you're missing out on the heartbeat of this church if you're not coming out to underground prayer. Honestly, you're shortchanging yourself if you're not coming out and plugging into these times of study and to these times of fellowship. You know, what do you, what's going on in your life that's better than meeting with God and hearing Him speak to your heart? What's better than seeking God for the church, seeking God for His bride? He's speaking encouragement to His people who are willing to seek His face, willing to give themselves to the study of God's Word and to prayer. We have no idea as a, as a church. We have no idea of how God would be willing to use us in this town if we would just be committed to seeking Him with a, with a whole heart. He's looking for people who will stand in the gap for this church and for this town, for this nation. He's looking for people that are willing to just give themselves over to him completely so that he can do the unthinkable. There are wells of the communion table every Sunday morning. There's refreshing at the communion table. There's strength. There's revelation flowing from that well. We want to gather around the well of fellowship with each other on Sundays and coming uh, soon to Thursdays. And as we go forward as a church, I want us to catch a vision of just redigging these wells that our forefathers have dug for us, getting back to this, the foundations of our faith and living what we say we believe. I want to encourage you to spend time and, and meditate on these things, will you? Ask the Lord how you can be part of what He's doing here in the church. How you can be part of serving in the church. We've been called, you've been called to this church for the purpose of service in the body in a way that brings glory to the Lord and edification to the body. Ephesians 4.16 says, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by uh, what every joint supplies according to the effectiveness or the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of love uh, of itself and love. I messed it up so much, I want to read it again. For whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the fact of working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body, and the edifying of itself in love. That's the purpose of church. We come together. We serve each other. We love each other. We encourage each other for the building up of one another in the faith. And I want to encourage you tonight. Be part of finding that refreshment that comes from redigging the wells of service to the body. Redigging the wells of joining in and serving the Lord by serving His people, serving within the church. Verse 19, Also Isaac's servants 
dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. Running water is often, uh, it's, often a refer, uh, it's often referred to in the Bible as living water. You know, water that's running or living is preferred over water from a cistern. I mean, you might, you know, draw water from a cistern, you scoop it up and you look at it. You see all kinds of things swimming in the water. You're going to get the water and some protein when you drink water from the cistern. But living water or running water, you know, it's water that's bubbling up. It's fresh. It's clean. It's um, cool. It's refreshing. It says verse 20, But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, This water is ours. So he called the name of the well dispute, contention, or uh, Essek, because they quarreled with him. That's what Essek means. It means dispute, means uh, contention. There was this dispute going on. So Isaac, he moves on. Isaac was in Gerar, and he had to move out of Gerar into the valley of Gerar. He digs this well. There's a dispute. So he moves on and digs another well, verse 21. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna, or opposition. Isaac is facing opposition. There's disputing and opposition. There's problems uh, in his life. And he moved from there, verse 22, and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called the name Rehoboth because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Even though Isaac finds room in the land and some relief from the trials and tribulation, God is still moving Isaac on. God wants to get Isaac to the place where he can give him the greatest of all blessings. Isaac moves on, verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night. The same night he gets to Beersheba, the Lord appears to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply you, your descendants and for my servant Abraham's sake. And you don't want to miss this. You need to understand what's going on here. Isaac was dwelling in Gerar. That's not where the Lord wanted him. The Lord didn't appear to him at all while he was in Gerar. And there was a lack of fellowship happening there uh, with the Lord and, and Isaac. There was no fellowship. And just like Abraham when he was in Egypt, when he was also in, in Gerar, um, you know what? Uh, when, he was in the, when Abraham was in the world, there was nothing going on spiritually. So what does the Lord do as Isaac is there in Gerar? The Lord brings problems into his life. He's chastening Isaac. Problems with the king. And those problems move Isaac out of Gerar into the valley of Gerar. And he digs a well there, and there's more problems. There's disputes going on. So he moves on again. He digs another well, and there's opposition. And what does he do? He moves on again. And now he gets to the place where there's room in the land. There's a little bit of peace. There's a little bit of quiet, but it doesn't seem right. So God, again, moves him back up to the center 
of the promised land, moves him there into Beersheba. And on the same night he gets to where God wants him to be, God appears to him. The greatest of all blessings is seeing God as he is and hearing him speak, hearing his voice. But what a picture this is of how God is willing to bring chastisement into our lives if we're dwelling in the world or too close to the world. One foot of the world while trying to keep one foot in the church. If you're trying to live that close to the world, well, you know what? You're going to fall into sin, like we said, and God will bring chastisement into your life. To bring, He'll bring difficulties into your life. He'll bring opposition into your life to get you where He wants you to be. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, it says in Hebrews. And we're told that we're not to despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. Right? He'll allow difficulties in your life to get you and keep you where you need to be so he can appear to you and speak to you in a way that you know that it actually is the Lord. Maybe if you're experiencing problems, you know, people problems, hard times, you know, maybe God is trying to move you back into the center of His will, you know, where He can appear to you again, where He can speak to you again. But as long as you're hanging out there near the edge of the world, sitting on the fence, you're going to experience an emptiness in your life. You're going to experience a dryness. There's going to be a distance between you and the Lord. You're not going to be experiencing the spiritual fulfillment, the fruit that you want to experience. You're not where He wants you to be. And that's maybe why you're having such problems. That's the reason for the people problems. God's trying to get your attention maybe, trying to get you to a place where He wants you, Try to get you to a place where He can appear to you and speak to you. Verse 25, so Isaac, he builds an altar there, called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Notice this. The first thing Isaac does when God appears to him is that he builds an altar. Then he pitches his tent. You know what? The Lord needs to be first in every aspect of our lives. Verse 26, then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of the army. Now, we don't know who this Ahuzath is, but we know Phicol, it's a title. It's a title of the commander of the army, just like Abimelech is a title of the king. Verse 27, and Isaac said to them, when you've come to me, since you, or why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So he said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we've done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You're now the blessed of the Lord. They say we've done nothing to you, Isaac, but good. That's called revisionist history. You know, didn't they clog up the wells? Didn't they uh, chase him away? And Abraham, he was a little bolder when they chased him away uh, back in the day, when they clogged up his wells, right? 
Um, well, when they came to him and asked for peace, Abraham said, yeah, you guys took a well from me? You want peace? Give me the well back first. Then there can be peace between us. Here, Isaac, he's a little more timid than his dad. He, he comes from Gerar. He settles in Beersheba. It's the place where God wants him to be. He makes this peace treaty, it would appear, because verse 30 says, So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. They rose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's way pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Isaac's ways are now pleasing the Lord. He's where God wants him to be. He's back in the center of God's will. And now again, his enemies are at peace. Verse 32. Now it came to pass in that day that Isaac's servants came and told him about a well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And now we move on to a little vignette of Esau. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And again, you know, people want to give their kids biblical names, but I don't see anybody ever, I've yet to see anybody name their daughter Basemith. You know, nobody even cares about her feelings, man. That hurts. That hurts. Verse 35, and they were a grief. These two girls were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. Isn't it interesting that Abraham was very concerned with who his son would marry? Now Esau, he's the same age as Isaac when he got married. Abraham made sure that Isaac wouldn't marry one of the girls in that land. But now Isaac, he seems to be lacking in that oversight in his son's life. And as a result, the women that uh, Esau marries, they're a grief of mine to uh, Isaac and Rebekah. And, and as parents, you know, this needs to be a lesson to us. As parents, we need to stay engaged. We need to be involved in our, in our kids' life, especially during that time when they're dating. We need to stay engaged and be part of the conversation during that time that they're dating, you know, we need to be part of the conversation when they're talking about who they're going to marry. You know, I see many parents, they let many Christian parents, they let their kids date non-Christian Christian kids. And then you know what happens? They fall in love, they get married, and they're unequally yoked. Here's a statistic for you. You may find this amazing. But do you have any idea what the number one reason for Christians marrying non-Christian is? The number one reason why Christians marry non-Christians is because they date them, right? People fall in love with the people they date. I'm not very smart, but that's the way it worked out for me and Tina, and I'm pretty sure that's the way it worked out with you. That's a fact. If you let your kids date non-Christians, if you're not engaged in their life and they're just doing their own thing, you know what? They're going to fall in love with the person they're dating and they're going to want to get married. We need to stay involved in our kids' life. We need to be an influence in their lives. And when they're grown, 
We don't stop being an influence. We continue that influence. And then we continue an influence in their kid's life. It's a grief to everyone involved when believers marry an unbeliever. I mean, just think about it. What do you tell your kids? You know, you tell them, hey, pray for daddy. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't know Jesus. What, mommy? Daddy's going to go to hell? Shh, don't say that out loud. But you know what? That's the way it is. And kids are always going to tend towards, um, they're going to be inclined towards the unbelieving parent because they're not going to hold them to the same standard that the believing parent is. Abraham did well in this area, being part of, you know, his son's biggest decision in life, who it was that he was going to marry. Isaac, he fails in this area. And Isaac loved Esau too. You know, it wasn't a failure because he didn't love him. The failure is he never took a stand in Esau's life. He never stood up to him. You know, as we just close, wherever you are today, you know, the Lord would bid you to come and drink from his wells, right? Wells of Bible study and prayer, wells of refreshing, wells, uh, you know, of just renewal and strength and revelation. You know, what are you drinking from uh, nowadays? What priorities are in your life as a believer? You know, are you standing for Christ uncompromisingly? Are you putting him first in all things? Or are you drinking from the stagnant wells of the world? You know, are you living in the land of Gerar? Are you living on the fence? You have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Wherever you are as a believer, or even as an unbeliever, there's a well of called salvation and forgiveness. You know, and all you have to do is come and receive. If you're an unbeliever, if you've never given your life to Christ, you know, and you're tired of drinking from the stagnant wells of the world, you know, drink that which is going to be satisfying. You're never going to be satisfied drinking from the wells of the earth. Come and drink from the wells of life. Revelation 22, 17 says, And the Spirit and the bride, they say, come. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the bride, the church of Christ. We say, come. We invite you to come. It says, let him who hears come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the waters of life freely. I mean, that's an invitation from the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. That's God the Father's heart. That's why Christ died on the cross, that you might come to him and receive from him salvation. It's an invitation to receive life and life more abundantly. The wells of peace, of power, of grace, of wisdom, of transformation, the wells of restoration and refreshing, they're available to you in Christ Jesus today. Salvation and forgiveness of sin is available to you if you'll just come. Your past can be washed away. Your sins can be forgiven. And God is willing to give you a fresh start. All you need to do is just come to Him. Let's pray. Father God, as a... We just finished this Bible study, Lord. We just want to take a minute. And Lord, if there's somebody there 
hearing tonight that doesn't know you, Lord, would you just begin to move on their heart even now? Lord, would you just begin to move on their heart? Lord, just how much they need you. Show them how unsatisfied they are in their current life and show them that you're willing to offer them the free gift of salvation, willing to make them a new creation, willing to wipe the slate clean. Lord, if they would just come to you, Lord, and I just pray you would just move on their hearts now and, and encourage them to pray and ask you to come into their life. Encourage them to confess their sins to you and ask for forgiveness. Encourage them to tell you that they're sorry for the things they've done. Lord, I just I know that if they'll tell you uh, that they're sorry and ask for forgiveness, you'll meet them. Lord, and I pray that you just give them the courage to pray that prayer right now and ask for the power of the Holy Spirit in their life to enable them to walk with you, to say no from sin as you set them free. Lord, I just want to pray for those people. Pray that you meet them, encourage them. And Lord, as they give their heart to you, you cleanse them and fill them as you promised, Lord. And Father, for, the, for those at Calvary Chapel Truckee, Lord, that are just maybe sitting on the fence, they haven't jumped in. They're maybe right now they're not all in with the things of God. Maybe they're, you know, drinking from the wells of this world too, trying to be close to the world, but also be in the church. But I just pray you help them, encourage them, strengthen them to run after Jesus Christ with all their heart, with all their mind, soul, strength, everything that's within them. Lord, just a fresh commitment in their life to you, Lord. I pray that right now you'd just be moving on their hearts. Lord, for Calvary Chapel Truckee as a whole, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for, God, your protection. We look to you. We trust in you, Lord. We pray that you would work in us and reveal to us all that you would have for us in this chapter, in your word, Lord. Speak to us, appear to us, refresh us, renew us, restore us, Lord. God, show us how to redig those wells that have been clogged up by the enemy and just get back into uh, the word and prayer as a priority in our life, Lord. Father God, we love you. We ask your blessing upon this church. We just pray that your spirit would move mightily within our church, Lord. And you would draw people that need to hear the word of God, Lord. People that need to, to hear, that want to be saved. Lord, I pray you draw them to us. Lord, where we can help them just on their walk with you, Lord. We love you. We bless you, Lord. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.